Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Central Midweek. So glad that you can join us once again. What an incredible weekend we had last weekend. And this weekend on Sunday, I'm going to share a little bit about what God did. But it has completely blown my mind to see the way that God worked. And we're just so thankful and we're blessing God for everything that he's done. Now, what I've been doing over the last few weeks is just really trying to get a sense for what it is that God wants to say, how he wants to encourage us in this season, how he wants to challenge us. And so I've spent some time listening to what is being said, reading around people's opinions about what's coming. And as a result of that, I've taken that to God in prayer, and I've been led to start a three-week mini-series that I'm calling Practicing a Prolonged Faith. The focus for this mini-series is Jeremiah chapter 32. So if you've got a Bible, you may want to turn there, but I really sense this is something that God wants to speak to us. And tonight, I want to encourage you to develop that prolonged faith, but I also want to challenge you to develop that prolonged faith. Don't give up. However bleak it may seem for you, don't quit. See what God is doing beyond your story and your experience right now. Now, I want to begin tonight by uh, telling you a, a rather humorous story of the time when Vipka and I were in Hamburg, Germany, and we had three little kids. And what we would do every summer, can you believe this? We had six weeks vacation in Germany, and as a pastor, I could never take that much. So we decided to take about two and a half weeks, and we were going to go from Hamburg, North Germany, all the way down through uh, the Swiss Alps, over the Swiss Alps, into the Italian Alps region, to the lakes there. And we were going to go camping uh, in the Italian Alps and in the lake region. Well, on the way down, our car broke down twice to the point where replacing it was the better option than repairing it. So we kind of got to uh, Switzerland, the Switzerland-France border, which is where Vipka's parents are from, replaced the car, went on vacation. It was amazing. Drove all the way back home. Everything was great. Well, on the Monday morning that I went back to work, I basically was traveling home from an appointment, and I came to a traffic light, and I was in the center lane, lanes either side of me, and uh, I accidentally hit a button, and all of a, all of a sudden, the car actually spoke to me. Now, you've got to remember, this is the early 2000s, okay? All of you frustrated with voice recognition technology now, you should have seen what it was like back then, and it was in German. So I'm like, this is cool. So uh, I, I kind of pushed the button again. And you know, you get these kind of helpful uh, instructions about what to do. And I think, okay, I've got this thing. So I pushed the button and I said, Radio Speicherdrei, which means radio station, memory, channel three. Two long tones greeted me, which basically means I got it wrong. So I thought, okay, let me try it again. Pushed it. Radio Speicherdrei. The car spoke to me. Befehl nicht verstanden. Bitte wiederholen. Which basically means I didn't understand what you were saying. Please repeat. Uh, I hit it again. Radio, speiche drei. The car spoke back. Wie bitte? Which basically is like, what are you trying to say? At that moment, I roared uh, laughing. I found the thing so funny. And uh, little did I realize that the people on either side of me were actually looking at me and, and they didn't realize the cars could speak back then. And I looked like a complete fool who was talking to myself. Now, this, this is the part that gets interesting. You know, it's bad enough having your kids correct your German back then without my car putting me to shame. <laughs> I mean, in that moment, I became 
a big fan of Albert Einstein, and I think he was right. Time is relative. The clock in that car got slower and slower, and my waiting time got longer and longer. I really felt like opening up the car's manual to see if that car had a dashboard device that changed the red light to a green light at the touch of a button. Or better still, what would happen if I could speak a word and it would just change? Now, where am I going with this? All of this car and traffic talk actually leads me to our text. It's found, as I said, in Jeremiah 32. And this is where the people of Jerusalem feel as though they're sitting, well, no, waiting at a huge red light in their national and corporate life. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has the city surrounded. And the people were close to starvation and they were close to surrender. Now, as you can understand, in a, in a time of national calamity, some of the people wanted God to speak the word and remove the Babylonian army, and they were waiting for that. Others around there wanted them to take up arms and to fight. Others wanted to find a way of escaping from the city. Now, this army of Babylon is huge. It's a huge glaring red light, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to change. Enter this text. Now, chapters 32 and 33 of Jeremiah are the second part of a great song of hope that Jeremiah gave while locked up by King Zedekiah. What I want to do is encourage you, get your Bibles. Let's read together from Jeremiah 32 from verse 2 through verse 15. So Jeremiah 32, 2 through 15. This is what we read. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So here the the king is telling us what Jeremiah said. So verse 6, Jeremiah continues. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, uh, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, verse 8 says, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. 
Verse 13, in their presence I gave Barak these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both sealed and unsealed, copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. I love this text. I really believe that it has so much to say to us. Now, again, the date here is around 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar had deposed the king Jehoiakim, and he installed Zedekiah as his vassal king. Zedekiah imprisoned Jeremiah. Now, during Zedekiah's rule, Jeremiah advised the leaders of Judah to submit to Babylonian rule and not to look to Egypt for help. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 2 and Jeremiah chapter 37. Now, while Jeremiah saw terror and disaster coming upon God's people, God revealed to the prophet that this would one day lead to restoration and to joy. Jeremiah 31, 37. So Jeremiah's doom-filled message didn't go down well. And so the prophet was criticized for being a traitor and committing treason. His critics regarded him as a false prophet. Why? Because he did not believe in, get this, the doctrine of Zion's invincibility. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4. So Judah and Jerusalem are under threat. Now, now let's stop there. Let's think about this. They're under threat. They're holed up. They're hemmed in. As I think about that, I realize that through COVID-19, much of our corporate life is under threat too. And inevitably in times like this, theological questions start getting asked. Questions like, where's God? Now, it's clear from this text that it is the moral and the spiritual failures of Judah that have led them to where they were. Now, for the record, I'm not saying that the coronavirus is a punishment from God for our moral and spiritual failures. You probably heard that. I'm not saying that. I'm turning to this text because I think it offers us insight regarding how we respond when we find our corporate existence as a nation under threat. But let's address, to begin with, the issue about God's involvement for a moment, simply from the context of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32 states that God isn't absent from the situation in which Judah finds herself. Judah is reaping what she has sown. But God is present. And this God will move the process beyond their self-inflicted judgment. So in other words, judgment is a penultimate word. But it's not the final word. God was going to build a better future for his people. But it was not going to happen as quickly or as easily as God's people wanted it. So while the king of Babylon was hemming the people in, this background tells us that the king of Babylon is actually fulfilling the plans and purposes of God, and he's giving the prophet and the people ample opportunity to prove their faith. As verse 15 says, houses and vineyards will again be bought in this land. 
So that's why Jeremiah has the deeds to his property securely sealed. Now, here's the kicker. To see the future, God's people would need to practice what I'm calling a prolonged faith. Think about that word, a prolonged faith. A prolonged faith, I think, is a faith that trusts that God isn't finished with us even when the outlook is bleak. I want to unpack that for a second. Because in that context, Jeremiah 32, the two basic lessons of the text are this. First, God is in control of the stoplights. Directly or indirectly, and as much as we may want it, there is no traffic light switch here. One of the lessons of this section of Jeremiah, which runs from Jeremiah 29, which speaks of life in Babylon, to Jeremiah 34, is how important it is to think correctly. When feeling hemmed in, the first thing this section of the text tells us we need to do and we need to have is a lesson in theology. So the critical question of theology is always this. How should we think? When we find ourselves in a troubling season with people spouting all kinds of ideas about what is happening, we need to ask ourselves, how should I think about this? With that question in mind, go back a few pages in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29. I want to read something from here from verse 4. I love Jeremiah 29. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture about how the church needs to, to uh, be ministering in a, in a very changing word according to an unchangeable God. This is, this is what verse 4 says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now stop there. <laughs> verse 4, this verse, okay, happens after Jeconiah was taken into Babylon, which is around 598 BC. So this is a year, Jeremiah 29 is about a year, okay, or so a little more, before chapter 32. And by this time, Babylon had already invaded Judah and Jerusalem twice. First time was 605 BC, carted people off. Second time was 598 BC, carted people off. And so they take captives both times. Third time, 597, which is the context of Jeremiah 32. And so when Jeremiah wrote chapter 29, there was still a sizable population in Jerusalem and Judah. But as chapter 32 shows us, they would also be conquered and carried away into forced exile. But in chapter 29, Jeremiah says that the Lord Almighty carried them into exile. Think about that. The Lord Almighty. Those words are Yahweh Sabah. <laughs> now, Sabah is the root meaning to wage war. The one who carried them into exile is, in fact, the one who wages war on their behalf. Consequently, what was happening to them was under the sovereign control of God. Twenty verses in Jeremiah chapter 29 have those words, I will or I have declarations. God says, I will and I have. In other words, God is in control. God is active in the lives of his people. And he's active for his larger redemptive purpose. So think about this. Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 32 remind us 
that even when the people are hemmed in and carried off, there are some truths that we can know about Yahweh Tzabah. The first thing is this. This God is immutable. He never changes. What was true for God's people in Babylon is true for God's people in Jerusalem when they're under siege. So friends, wherever we live, whatever situation we're dealing with, we live with an unchanging God. Second, this God is also self-sufficient. He is Almighty. Jeremiah 29 and 32 have that phrase, the Lord Almighty. He's self-sufficient. He brings about his will without any help. So Psalm 50 verse 12, one of my favorites. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. See, we can't give to God anything that he doesn't already possess. So what do we give him? Ourselves. The third truth about this God Almighty is that he's omnisapient. He is all-wise. He's wisdom personified, and all things happen for a greater end. Now, that end is not a new Jerusalem. The end is a heavenly Jerusalem. God is actually preparing his people, not for their return, but for his coming. Friends, a prolonged faith is built upon thinking correctly, believing the right things about God. And believing the right things about God should give us confidence. And even though that confidence comes together with a troubling reality that sometimes we're hemmed in, we're holed up, this is what we know. Yahweh Sabah uses secondary agents to bring his people back to personal faith. Friends, in this season, let's commit to thinking correctly. Yes, we're hemmed in. We are holed up. We're concerned for our futures. But let's ensure that our faith is a prolonged faith. God can use this coronavirus to bring us back to a personal faith in him. And this personal faith is based on the truth that no matter how long this goes on for, Yahweh Sabah wages war on our behalf. Do I hear an amen to that? Now, the second truth about this text is this. There is no better time to make a move towards a grander future than when we're sitting at one of life's traffic lights. See, the lesson in this text is the holdups do not give us the right to sit and sweat. Holdups challenge us to practice a prolonged faith. See, when you read this text in this section of the text, Jeremiah 29 through 32, you realize that God was building a better future. And that's why Jeremiah was at peace even though he's in prison and even though the world is at war. His faith was, get this, elongated enough to help him see beyond his prison and beyond the pending exile to a future of hope. Let's apply this to our context right now. This is probably the first time that most of us have ever had to lock ourselves up in a room for fear of an outside force. Just the other day, somebody came to me and said, man, is this the first time I've ever been locked up in a home for this long? Is it yours? And, and initially I said, yes, but then I realized it's not. When I was younger through my hip surgery, I, I didn't leave my living room for six, seven, eight, nine months. 
But the reality is that being locked up like this makes us feel trapped. It's not pleasant to have someone or something putting our life on hold. But yet again, though, COVID-19 has given us an opportunity to experience emotionally what people throughout history have long felt and people around the world in less fortunate and privileged places than us are feeling about their lives nearly every day. People have felt trapped. People are feeling trapped. And now we get to share in that experience. At this stage in our captivity, and I use that word lightly, there's lots of debate about how long our experience should last and who has the right to end it. At least if you've been watching the news over the last few days, you'd realize that's the case. We have no answers to those questions, right? But Jeremiah 32, 14 talks about this people needing to wait, and I quote, a long time. Now, that's an understatement because in exile, God's people would have to wait 70 years to see what God was orchestrating back home. 70 years. It was going to be so long that in Jeremiah 29, the people are encouraged to get married, have their kids, build their homes, settle down. How much faith does it take to wait that long? How much faith does it take to go through all of that and not turn your back on God? Let me ask you, are you able to pr practice that kind of prolonged faith in the trial that you're going through right now? God's people were challenged to a faith that waited 70 years. Let me ask you, what if you had to wait 70 days? What if we had to wait 70 days? Could we do it? See, I really believe if we want to be in a position to move forward when we feel hemmed in, we have to take up the challenge Jeremiah laid down in this text. Now, from verses 6 through 9, Jeremiah responds to Zedekiah's claims about, his, uh, about Jeremiah's predictions of the future by explaining how God led him to buy a field from his cousin. I'm going to go into the specifics of this next week because it's so good, offers us such amazing truth on discerning God's will. But I haven't got time to go into that tonight, but I do want to just flesh out a little bit about what's going on. The reason Jeremiah gives for buying it is not simply because God said, it's also because he has what is called the, the right of redemption. I read from the New International Translation, and the words in there are, Hanamel says to Jeremiah, hey, you have the right and the duty to buy this thing. Well, the right and the duty is literally the right of redemption. That's the way most other translations translate it. The word for duty is derived from the Hebrew word to redeem. It speaks of a kinsman redeemer, someone who could buy back or acquire family property or even family members who had been acquired by someone else. Now, here's the application. Redemption always costs something. Our redemption cost Jesus his life. And so whether it is the atonement, our salvation, or the purchase of property, redemption, get this please, rests in the dynamics of a gift made on behalf of those unable to gain something for themselves. 
Our redemption was made possible by the gift of Jesus, a gift that we weren't able to give. And so for redemption to work, it requires those who have to give on behalf of those who don't. Now, Jeremiah's act of redemption is strange, isn't it? The prophet is told to buy a piece of land in a town, city, that is about to be destroyed by an invading army. It seems like a really bad business decision to me. This is a bad time to purchase property. The traffic light, however, may be red, but God tells Jeremiah that he doesn't have to feel stuck. He should have the faith for restoration and do what the Lord tells him to do. So again, let's apply this to our situation. If saving lives costs us a season of hardship and sacrifice, would we do it? Would we do it for redemption's sake? See, for Jeremiah, this involved purchasing a plot of land he wouldn't ever see the fruit of. But his ancestors would. Let me ask you, have you got that type of faith? Would you still have the faith to worship God in the days, months, and possibly years ahead when you had little evidence that what God was doing was going to honor what he'd said. Jeremiah died without really tasting any real fruit from his own ministry. His legacy was seen in the lives of those who came after him. Those of you familiar with scriptures know the stories. His legacy was lived out in those people who came back and with Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. It's lived out in the people like Ezra who came back and, and restored the temple. Jeremiah knew only hardship in his life. In 40 years of ministry, there's hardly any evidence of fruit. And in this text, he's in prison for speaking the truth to the king. Yet the parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus are so numerous. And his writings are quoted and alluded to so many times in the New Testament. Let me ask you this. What if... Your trials right now and the trials in life from here on out resemble Jeremiah's. What if your life as a result of this virus looked so radically different to what it had been to date, but what if the fruit of that difference was that a future generation would stand up and honor your faithfulness, even drawing parallels between your life and that of Jesus's? Would that be enough for you? This week, do a search on the parallels between Jesus' life and Jeremiah's life. It's going to shock you how similar these experiences are. Both lives were possible because both men had a faith strong enough and long-sighted enough to see past the struggle to a future being wrought by God, a future that would outlast them and outlive them. Friends, there's no other way of saying this, so I'll just say it straight out. The longer this shutdown goes on, the harder it is likely to be for us all. So are you willing right now, tonight, even as you watch this, to commit to a prolonged faith? To see past the struggle. To base 
your faith on the belief that no virus is ever going to stop God fulfilling his purposes. And if, you're, if you struggle in faith, and if that struggle lays a foundation for faithfulness in those that come after you, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, are you able to say that that's worth it? If the fruit of your life after this virus is that your ancestors will yet buy houses and vineyards in this land, will you commit to trust him no matter how difficult it is for you? Friends, that's what's on the line right here. This is not simply a battle for our existence. This is a battle for the mission of Christ. And I honestly believe that the church of Jesus, if the people of Jesus respond by having a prolonged faith, will emerge stronger as a result of this crisis than we went into it. But the price we pay may well be hardship. Church, if we commit to a faith that sees further into the future than our current struggles, we're going to be shocked at what God's going to do. Again, we don't know how long we will be under a siege like this. But we do know this. Our God is Yahweh Tzabah. He is waging war on our behalf. Believe it. Stand on it. Trust God no matter how long this thing takes. Because that's what practicing a prolonged faith looks like. Won't you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the truth of who you are. You are Yahweh Tzabah, the Lord Almighty. You are immutable, you are self-sufficient, and you are omnisapient. And God, we trust you in what we are experiencing. And I pray, Father, for everyone who's listening to this, who is anxious, fearful, who is struggling, who wonders what it is that you are doing, may they respond right now, Father, by holding on to these unmistakable truths about who you are. And more than that, Father, may we all commit to putting into practice what Jeremiah demonstrated, that we will be willing to pay the price in being faithful to what you have called us to be and to do no matter what the struggle involves. And Father, we pray that as a result of our struggle, we will yet see our children, our grandchildren serving you, not just buying lands and planting vineyards, Father, but seeing your kingdom come through them in a powerful way. God, if that's what it takes, if our struggle is what it takes for that to happen, and give us a prolonged faith to see past our struggle to the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. I hope you can join us on the weekend for our services 9, 10, 45, at 1 and 7. We're starting a new series, Open Water, where we're starting to address, okay, what, what does life look like as we look at the great expanse of our future right now, with all of its uncertainty, how do we start to, to put our lives back together in the right way? It's going to be an incredible service. We hope you can join us. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Be blessed, and we'll see you all soon.